Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Everything's all supernatural. It's zombies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. What, okay. what, say, yeah, what say you, George? Watch it. It's on <laughs> F movies. But so it's really cute because they work in. You know, just for fun, they work in a lot of references of, to the future of things that they're thinking about. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful show. I'm surprised you haven't gotten hooked on it. Murdoch. I'm not much of a TV watcher. Yeah. Well, it reminds no. me of a cherry ass. Let's and I hate get that going bitch. here. Mm-hmm. All right. Three, two. Hi, I'm Eli Bosnick of God Awful Movies, and I took a left at the valley. I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists. You know, we don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with the religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist. Atheist, atheist. From the meditation chamber of a forgotten Tibetan Zen temple, this is Left to the Valley. My name is Kevin, and I am your calm, cool, and relaxed host. Breathe in. Joining me as usual are the incense burners of atheism, who will connect you with your inner peace. Exhale. Our towel of love and history incense of lavender, Nancy. I'm meditating. Our art of war skeptic incense of sandalwood, Tyler. <laughs> You're sandalwood. I don't know where you come up with this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, welcome back. Oh, good to be here as always. Yeah. We had a, an interesting week and we're going to try to start this nice and relaxing. Let's do it in a calm, in fashion. calm way. <laughs> if I fall asleep, it's your fault. <laughs> um, the audience might be doing that already. <laughs> but chit chat before we go on today, we'll be talking about uh, the uh, flood, the uh, Noah's Ark flood. You know the local flood. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we'll bring in a geologist a bit later. But first, a bit of chit chat. What do you guys think about that whole mess with the uh, pipeline that's happening in Dakota? Oh, man, it looks like it's um, kind of come to a halt for a little bit that um, when the, the, why don't you, you want to explain a little bit about about it and then we can talk about it. I, I don't know who who in our audience may or there, may not be familiar with it. There's a lot of information, there's a lot of misinformation about yeah. it too. Uh, it's one of those pipelines, obviously, that's supposed to be taking uh, tar sand uh, down through North Dakota and through several states and uh, heading towards the East Coast. Um, the problem is, is um, it was approved and it's passing through some, um, what the uh, Sioux would call sacred lands. Exactly. And uh, they were not really consulted and were Essentially, the uh, companies just came in and kind of bulldoze everything, including uh, some of the uh, ancient burial sites. Right, and the water, the waterways. Yes, the, the suit came out essentially yeah. concerned much more about the water, I think, and I think they, they have a bit of a point. Uh, and it, uh, it was completely ignored by the media for the longest time, the, the regular mainstream media, not people like us because we're awesome. 
And uh, social media was talking about it a lot. Um, and uh, it kind of came to a bit of a confrontation. The uh, corporations that are uh, pushing that pipeline essentially hired private security. And that private security came in with dogs. And there are like awful scenes of people being attacked by those dogs. Unarmed. Uh, yeah. Children. And, yes. and it's Women kinda, and children. It's kind of funny to see that the police were there. And then the police kind of left. And then the, the security with the dogs came in, and all of a sudden these 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 issues are happening. Um, and now apparently there's been an injunction, and then the judge decided to let it happen anyway. But apparently then Barack Obama stepped in and said, "Okay, we got to put a bit of a moratorium on this. We got to think this through." So, is it a complete victory at this point? I'm not sure, but well, at least kind of halted for now. Yeah, at least it's halted, and the. Um the Army engineers, the Corps of Army engineers, um, I really admire them that they stepped up and said, even though the judge issued this injunction, we're going to rethink um, the situation, and maybe there are some factors that we didn't consider. So the fact that they defied the injunction, the uh, order to go ahead, and paid attention, you know, to the people who live there, because let's it's it's their land. Mm-hmm. And they've been ignored. So I'm, I'm really glad that there's this halt. And I'm hoping that when they look through all of the um, um, uh, evidence of the, the ground and the, the, uh, the peoples themselves and what that land means to them and the destruction of the waterways and so forth, that they, they realize they're going to have to go around this land. Well, this is what bothers me the most, right? I mean, you're, you're creating such a problem. I mean, I don't think the, the, the Sioux are stopping necessarily the pipeline itself. They just don't want the pipeline to run over their rivers and their lakes to That's pollute my the water. Yeah, exactly. But, so you, you're trying to save a few bucks by basically bulldozing your way instead of detouring the pipeline, which would, of course, be more expensive for that company. But if it's going to save you that much more grief, it's worth doing. Well, this whole company, which is located in Texas, I forgot their name, but when the, the um, it was not only the Sioux, I understand that it's the largest gathering yes. of tribes, you know, in at least a, a hundred years when they all got together and the injunction was about to, to come, or the ruling was about to come down for the judge that the, the, the pipeline company went to one of the burial grounds and immediately started to bulldoze it in order to destroy whatever evidence of uh, burial grounds that, that might be. So this company already, you know, is is, is not an ethical no, company. No, no. And I'm surprised that the judge, but the judge said there wasn't enough evidence. I think that was his ruling. So now they're going to say, yes, there is, but it, we didn't have a chance to, to uncover it. Yeah. What was the place that I mentioned, Kevin? It was like 10 minutes ago. Bismarck. Yeah. Bismarck, yeah. So they have precedence, yeah. right? Because they tried to put it through there. And they obviously rejected it based on the potential water contamination issues. So they moved it to this other place. So if that's the main concern, then I think they should be able to reroute it. I don't even know if it's possible to reroute it or how easy that would be. But it depends on the argument. I mean, a lot of the people that I've been dealing with on Facebook and stuff are talking about the ancient burial grounds and, and that kind of thing. But And I think that's just a silly argument. But... So they're saying that they're going to go after the the lawyers are saying they're going to go after the water argument, which makes a heck of a lot more sense. Yes, yes, but, but as a humanist, it just seems kind of like reverse racism to be going on about native rights and stuff like that, because then you're isolating a specific group of people 
and they're saying, well, it's their land. I don't understand the... Well, I'm going to disagree with you because they do actually have sovereignty over their land. And it the reason this is uh, drawing so much of the native bands together is because it, it's, it's opening up old wounds, right? I mean, if you look at the history of the uh, American colonization of the continent, it was essentially... You know, we, we just took whatever we wanted and we just bulldozed over here, right? We just signed a few treaties that we'd never actually inf- respected or enforced. And all of a sudden, we're, we're building a pipeline, but we're not going to put it through a town because then you get that nimbyism, not in my backyard, you know? But we're just going to put it over native land and if they, they complain, too bad. So I understand their point. I understand their point. You know, if you're not willing to run that pipeline that is so important to you towards a settlement of... Caucasians, but you're willing to run it through a settlement of, of, or Latin, native land just because uh, that's just not right. This well, is yeah, not if it's based on the water argument, which is what they that had too. At, at Bismarck, So, but what people seem to be focusing on was this ancient burial ground thing, which I think is ridiculous. It's just a bunch of dead bodies, right? So... But yeah. it's, uh, I still don't understand the their land thing. I don't get that part. Well, I, you know, in, in terms of bun- a bunch of dead bodies, I think there's a lot more to it because there's there are many occasions where in, uh, in, in black neighborhoods they've done exactly the same yes. things. And when you have indigenous people and marginalized people who have gone through a lot of uh, prejudice in their lives, it's just one more blow to we don't matter if we're not Caucasian. Exactly. So it... it uh, um, you, you don't make any friends and you don't um, get unity going if you don't respect everybody's rights. I'm against cemeteries in general, <laughs> including... I'm against uh, death in general. Including Arlington. I'm, I'm against dying in general. <laughs> Exactly. Wow, they just seem like such a waste of space, and I mean traditional burial grounds. Yeah, but are that's bad. a totally yeah, bad I agree. For the environment. That's a separate argument, though. But I mean, if they can do it without contaminating the water, great. I'm fine with the environmental reasons, and I support them on that. Mm. Just the whole ancient burial grounds thing. I mean, people well, die everywhere, every single place. Like how many humans have died? And you know, yeah. By the way, to just just shove that body aside here, there. Yeah. Push him off the couch. <laughs> well, yeah, you can just bury Our me. Our last guest is actually dead on the couch right beside Tyler. Doesn't see him. You can just bury me in the backyard for all I care. It'd be nice and free. Well, it's it's a sensitive issue. It's like all that that flooding in New Orleans and goes because they have to have their tombs above the ground because of all of it. And yet, still, there's some yeah, yeah. problems there. Well, which is a whole other set of. That's a whole other show. Let's go on something <laughs> a bit more positive in the chit chat. Did you guys see that BC, right here in British Columbia, is adopting critical thinking as part of the curriculum for schools? Did Tyler finally get somebody to Apparently respond? Apparently he did. Tyler, thank you. You're welcome. I, I threatened to blow them all up. So. And yeah. you've been so quiet about it. So now as part of the, uh, the yeah. curriculum for the students, they will be taught how to... Uh, critical thinking, how to analyze situations, and they will try to do it with games and debates and stuff like that. Is that uh, all through BC, or are they starting with certain schools? I don't know. I couldn't it? find that on the website, but wow. I did find a little quote that says, you know, critical thinking involves making judgment based on reasoning. Students consider options, analyze these using specific criteria, and draw conclusions. About which is, time. It's a good, good step. It's Absolutely. a very positive step. And uh, that's going to pay dividends down the road, for sure. Yeah, I read this thing a while back. They had this, I guess, these Christians in the States were doing a lot of homeschooling because obviously they don't like the public system. It teaches them evolution and all that. So they started a critical thinking course within this kind of homeschool community. And then they got rid of it because the kids started questioning the religion in general. And yeah. the parents didn't like that one bit. <laughs> 
So, That's the fallout with yeah. critical thinking. It's like, it's like that sign you saw on Facebook. Or that, uh, that uh, was that sign that, that was at a church. As uh, reason is uh, the 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 further you uh, reason, the further you get away from God, or something like that. Something completely stupid, but it just proves the point. Deer, are you ready to go? I'm ready to go. Yes, Assuming sure. that I was the deer, I am ready. <laughs> <laughs> he calls me honey. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the All the love. Okay, here we go with this day in history, which is, as we know by now, a roundup of those events and individuals that altered and illuminated the days between September the 5th to September the 11th. Um, starting with September the 7th, it was Guess Who's 50th Anniversary. Guess Who? G- well, it, it, it could have been. Boy, oh boy, did I step into that one. It was Star Trek's 50th. Ooh. Anybody here, either of you Trekkies? Interview Trekkies? It, are any of either of you oh. Trekkies? Well, I don't know if I could call myself a Trekkie, but I'm familiar with uh, the series. and Yeah, no, it's been not a, a geek about it, but a lot, of, lot of celebration. I think know. I've insulted Star Trek on the show like at least three times already. So. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's, it's, it's been a big deal, and it, it still, you know, it hasn't, they're, they're still celebrating, I think, probably through the whole month. I think you should practice your Vulcan neck pinch on Tyler to the show. <laughs> if I can't sleep, I'll put Star Trek on. I'll be out in five minutes. There you go. It serves definitely serves a purpose. September the 8th is Grandparents Day and National Physical Therapy Day. They kind of go <laughs> together. together. They kind of go together. Absolutely. Hey, Grandpa moving. There you go. Okay, I'm going to do something a little bit different um, with this uh, day in history. Um, I'm going to take two stories rather than have a lot of different uh, events, which I usually do, two stories stood out. And so sometimes it's nice just to, to give a little more time you know, to, to certain um, people and events. So that's what we're going to do. On September the 8th in 1916, there were two sisters, Adelina and August Van Buren. And they were society girls. The Van Burens were, were wealthy. And so the girls pretty much uh, had a silver spoon in, in their mouth. And they decided they really wanted to, to do more with themselves. They wanted to be able to contribute um, and as that was the First World War, they wanted to be able to contribute some way to uh, the war effort. But being women, of course, they were overlooked and there was nothing that they could do. So they decided that what they would do to prove that they were worthy of working in side by side with men, they decided to, to uh, take a transcontinental motorcycle tour. And they f- actually finished it, and it w- they were the, f- the first successful um, uh, women to actually complete this journey. They were 22 and 24 years old. They started in New York on July 5th, uh, New York City on July 5th, 1916. And their accomplishment was that they rode 5,500 5, miles in 60 days over hazardous roads and uh, bad weather and mud and uh, uh, bugs. They, they just, it was, a ter- it was a terrible trip, but they stuck with it. And they dressed in military-style leggings and leather riding breeches, which was a tattoo, uh, a tattoo, a taboo at that time. And their motorcycles had gas headlights. So you can imagine... Ooh. 
riding uh, over poor roads and all uh, and social barriers uh, such as the local police who took offense at their choice of men's clothing and so they got arrested and they had to you know pay fines and get themselves out of it so it it really was a um, an arduous journey it, but they became the first women to reach the summit of Pikes Peak by any motor vehicle and finally arrived in Los Angeles on September the 8th. Uh, I don't know what these cops are thinking. You know, it's really hard to drive a motorcycle in a cocktail dress. <laughs> I, I've tried. I mean, it's really hard. It, it's the high heels that get you. It really <laughs> totally. Is. I know. high heels my size too, not easy. Yeah, I know. And that, but that, I, I have to say that high he- that cocktail dress that you chose was Gorgeous. <laughs> Your taste and fashion. You can't go wrong with a little black dress, right? You know, it was getting on the. It was the only, the only time you went wrong was was actually getting on that motorcycle. <laughs> anyway, they they completed the ride and then went across the border to Tijuana on September the twelfth. And these, although they did not accomplish their goal of actually, you know, serving side by side with men during World War One, uh, Adelina, the oldest uh, woman, owned her um, earned her law degree in New York University, and Augusta became a pilot, and she actually flew. Um, in um, Amelia Earhart's group, the 99s, which is the International Women's Flying Organization. So they both played significant roles in the women's right movement. But could you imagine in 1916 the concept that these girls said, yes, we can do this. Love them. Just Wait, love them. And How you never, did this help the war effort? They wanted to. They wanted mm. to become um, like um, military drivers or dispatch drivers. They wanted to do some, not actually in fighting, but at least to be accepted. Okay, you know, so they were trying to prove that, that they could auxiliary. do difficult yeah. driving. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Well, and back then, all the women were wearing burkinis, weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Um, September the 10th was Children's Day in Honduras, which brings us to our second story that has to do with a gentleman whose name at birth was Ezra Allen Minor. And he was born in Kentucky in 1847, but eventually went by the name of Bill Minor. And this is a Canadian story, believe it or not, even though he started in Kentucky. Is the name Bill Minor familiar to either one of you? Uh, the name is familiar, but I can't pinpoint. Not a clue. That's where I heard it. Have you been to Maple Ridge to Billy Miner's Pub? Oh, well, we're not far from Maple Ridge. I don't think I've been to the pub, but I'm, I've heard of it. Okay. Have you have you ever seen or heard of um, a Canadian movie called The Gray Fox? I'm asking you a lot of, yeah, a lot of arcane you're questions me, you're here. You're making me feel like I don't know nothing about no, my no, own no, country. No, 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 you do. This, th- but this makes my point that a lot of wonderful people are so forgotten and their stories buried that I think it's good to unearth them and talk about them. Billy Miner was the first train robber in Canada. Ooh, and I like he, him already. I know, <laughs> and he was a wonderful guy. He committed the, the robbery near Silverdale, which is close to, to Mission. Very close. Yeah. So he was often called the gentleman bandit because he had a, a, a very polite demeanor. Anyway, he it's was... Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> Even our robbers are polite. Yeah. He was, he was the, ge- the gentleman, ban- um, uh, gentleman bandit. He uh, was born in Kentucky, but headed west 
from Kentucky while still in his teens and ended up in New Mexico signing on as a dispatch rider during the Apache War. This is to give you a little context of, of how long ago this was. And it was a very lucrative profession. He earned up to $25 a letter. And he became a really big spender because he was making a lot of money, but he eventually outspent what he earned and turned to robbing stagecoaches to support his his lifestyle. So robbing stagecoaches was, was the beginning of his career. So he was first arrested in 1866, convicted of robbery, and sentenced to four years at San Quentin. So over the next 35 years, Billy Miner spent a total of 29 years and seven months behind bars on and off. Never stopped. He'd get out of jail and go right back to planning different robberies. So he was released twice, escaped five times, and it was once referred to by the Pinkertons. As they were the, the security people at that time. The, the Pinkertons are still here, uh, you know, uh, for um, bank security. And he was called the Master of the American West. So he was released from San Quentin for the third time in 1901 and just kind of drifted into British Columbia because he had a brother here um, fairly close by in uh, Pemberton. He had a brother in Pemberton. So on a, in, in September the 10th, 1904, in Silverdale, British Columbia, he and two cohorts stopped the Canadian Pacific Railroad number one and pulled off Canada's first train robbery. And it was a doozy because they got $7,000 in gold dust, over $900 in cash, and the biggie, $50,000 in railway bonds. Well, hold on. $50,000 and $900 in cash. Those are Canadian funds, so that's probably like a... Three dollars and fifty cents American. <laughs> well, back then I think that <laughs> it might have been four dollars and fifty cents. Come on, let's give <laughs> let's give the Canadian dollar a little break. So here they had all this money, and they went across the Fraser River to Chilliwack. And the next morning, the a policeman and posse spread out along the border to search for them, but they escaped and. Uh, slip, at, at that point, since they had enough money to live on for quite a while, they slipped in and out of B.C. for various robberies. So they did really, really well until May 8th, 1906, when he and his gang held up the wrong train <laughs> in Kamloops. <laughs> How could that be? There's only one train across the country probably at the time. Yeah, so th- <laughs> there was this train in Kamloops. So they, they robbed it, and they only got $15.50. So that was, what, like 32 cents? <laughs> 32 cents at that time. But anyway, the RCMP pursued them for five days and finally got them near Douglas Lake. And when they finally got them, hundreds of supporters came to town to protest his arrest because he was 60 years old at that point. And people knew him as being this polite guy that would come to town, spend a little money, you know, have They'd a drink just or two. Pretend fake arrest and pretend fake robberies. Oh, here you go. Here's five bucks for you. Yeah, Stick them up, please. Yeah, they just they, they couldn't believe it that he was the most wanted outlaw, you know, in, in Canada at that time. So anyway, they were convicted, unfortunately, and sent to the BC penitentiary at New West. To, in the States, that's New West. Mincer, we call it New West here. So in a few months, he escaped. <laughs> yeah, I, I you I know, it, it, so he escaped and went back to the U.S. because he figured, well, his career's over in the 
in Canada. So back he went to the U.S. and was arrested again in 1911 after committing Georgia, the state of Georgia's first train robbery. So they sent him to the Georgia Penitentiary, where he uh, unfortunately died in 1913. And his tombstone reads, Bill Miner, last of the old-time outlaws. So that's why they made a movie of him called The Gray Fox, because he just had this wonderful, it, it's sort of like um, looking at these, the bandit. Sundance, yeah, sort of like uh, the, the Sundance Kid. Yeah. You know, they, they committed all these robberies, but you couldn't help but love him because he was committing them in such an audacious fashion, you know, <laughs> just just great. Anyway, getting uh, those are our two stories for today. And then September 11th, of course, is Patriot Day and the National Day of Service and Remembrance for uh, 9-11. You mean Patriot Act Day. Patriot, yeah. Well, unfortunately, it's the word Patriot used in the Patriot Act was not exactly yeah, Patriot. Yeah, kind of Patriot. Right. Yeah. And that, dear li- listeners, brings to a close another passing parade of interesting, mundane, unusual, and occasionally bizarre, unlovable bizarre events that make up this day in history. Thank you, Nancy. And we'll be right back right after this. Hi, I'm the Supreme Irreverend Dr. Randy Tyson from the Legion of Reason Diversion. Join me and my co-hosts, Christine Shelska, Twyla, and Nate Phelps, as we explore issues at the intersection of atheism, humanism, and skepticism. Topics range from alternative medicine to the interference of religion in public policy. We often have special guests to help us understand the topic du jour. Previous guests include biologist Jerry Coyne, ex-Muslim author Ali Rizvi, philosopher Peter Bogosian, and the late physicist Victor Stanger. You can watch us on the Legion of Reason YouTube channel or subscribe to the audio version through your favorite podcatchers such as iTunes or Stitcher. And don't forget to like the Legion of Reason Facebook page. Now it's time for an AtheistAudiobooks.com sneak preview. The happy atheist disproving Christianity after faith in constitution Here is an excerpt from The Good News Club, the Christian Rights Stealth Assault on America's Children by Catherine Stewart. This book had its beginnings in one of those events that at first seems too small to matter until suddenly it becomes too big to ignore. When a program called The Good News Club showed up on a roster of after-school activities at my daughter's public elementary school in Santa Barbara, California. I didn't give it much thought. The club advertised itself as a non-denominational Bible study program for children of kindergarten age and older, and it required parental consent for children to participate. I soon found out, however, that the Good News Club is very different from what it appears to be. More importantly, I discovered that the club is really just one small part of a much larger story that should be of concern to anyone who cares about the future of public education or indeed the future of secular democracy in the United States. The Good News Club The Christian Rights Stealth Assault on America's Children is now available on atheistaudiobooks.com. 
Interested in a particular topic? You ever wonder where we find all this information? The Common Sense Canadian is a forum for critical discussion of the key issues shaping our world today. Water, energy, food security, and how we manage our resources to the public benefit while preserving our environment. So go to commonsensecanadian.ca. It's uncommonly sensible. And we're back. So we're going to be talking about the flood today, and we're going to have our geologist friend out of Texas. We'll call him Kevin. He wants to kind of remain anonymous. Let's get him on the line. Well, that's a stupid name to pick, then. I know. There's something about Kevin. Right? <laughs> Three now. Hey, I'm not taking you back to Chilliwack. Every time I go to Chilliwack, something happens. <laughs> I'm glad it's the Watson who's not here. <laughs> Three Kevins. All right, our next guest is a geologist in Houston, Texas, and he goes by the name of Kevin. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the show, good sir. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Kevin, thanks for having me on the show. Great good name. To, uh, good to be here with you guys. you got a great name, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I love yours, too. <laughs> welcome to the Valley. So, Kevin, you're a geologist. Yes, that's right. Educationally, I'm a geologist, although I've worked as a petroleum geologist and a petroleum geophysicist. Um, at different points in my career and managed them as well uh, as I moved into the management ranks. Now, is it true that the other sciences have a tendency to make to mock geologists? Because I, I've learned that from the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> uh, probably no less so than the fact that we mock them. <laughs> yeah. <Uh-oh>. Somebody <laughs> with uh, a degree no, in We're not the guys in the lab coats. Uh, we're the guys out stomping around in mountains and uh, working on drilling rigs and in mines. So. We're a pre- we view ourselves anyway as a, as a pretty hardy uh, lot, and uh, don't get a geologist uh, to start talking about beer. You probably won't get him to stop. <laughs> yeah. A string theorist making fun of the geologist is laughable, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> good point. It's a, yeah, conc- it's a, it's a concrete point. <laughs> uh, so, so, Kevin, would you be so kind to, uh, you, you, we're, we're keeping you anonymous here, but to give us a bit of, a, uh, of your background. For sure. Um, yes. Uh, I actually, very strangely, uh, while a geology student, started working as a geologist in my very first year. So my uh, geoscience uh, career and ongoing education goes back to the age of 18. And uh, I'm now at the advanced age of, well, let's just say I'm over 60. Um, so with geology in one way or another for a long time, I began my career after, um, well, actually while I was still going to graduate school in petroleum geology and petroleum geophysics, working for, uh, first a large multinational, uh, major oil company, and then a midsize, um, multinational oil company, and then, uh, moved from there to, uh, a small independent oil company of fewer than 20 people, which is actually very, very common in the North American oil business. It's not so common around the world, but it is very much so the case in uh, in Canada and in the U.S. And um, and after, uh, you know, exploring for and finding oil and gas uh, at that company, I ended up moving to the technology side of the business. I got very fascinated with um, 
what was happening in software at the time. This was in the uh, in the mid '80s when oil and gas business and what geologists and geophysicists did began to computerize, uh, began to work with their data on computer screens instead of on paper. And uh, I wanted to be in at the at the front end of that, and so I kind of shifted gears and started developing technology in the mid-80s and was uh, a designer of what became, the, the at the time, the industry's uh, most accepted and used software for seismic interpretation, reflection seismic interpretation. That's what geophysicists work with. And then uh, uh, further down the track, I became responsible for some of the design of basin modeling software, which is used to uh, simulate and predict uh, thermal histories in sedimentary basins, and from that to predict um, whether petroleum forms, if so, when, where, and where is it today. And so, without going into the, everything else, um, my career has been kind of split between more traditional uh, exploring for and finding oil and gas, and then uh, producing technology, delivering technology and services to all company clients. Uh, to do the same thing. So basically, you are single-handedly responsible for the pipeline in North Co- Dakota that's going <laughs> on now. I don't. I don't think I'm going to take uh, responsibility for that. One. <laughs> this this is the man. You know, we were just talking yeah, about that. that. That one's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you've had a lot of big words, uh, and I didn't understand half of it, so I, I, I'm forced to play. <laughs> this drop. So Hello? today we're going to be. He <laughs> didn't hear it. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I meant that. Today we'll be talking about the flood, the big flood, the big Kahuna. Tyler, you want to take that one away, or <laughs> the big uh, local flood, according to Tony Perkins? No, 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 no. It's it's a flood. It happened, and it was a big boat. And Ken Ham believes it happened. Yeah, like I met Kevin on Facebook probably about four years ago, before I knew anything about evolution or geology or anything like that and uh he he was the first person to ever mention tiktalik and i was like tiktalik that's not a word tiktalik yeah whatever i say tiktalik how do you pronounce it kevin how do you pronounce it It, i I have always pronounced it tiktalik but i i can't uh, claim to know for sure if that's correct well my interpretation is always correct so it's tiktalik that's (laughs) all Anyways, it's and called that, a tick. That, that's how I kind of started talking to, to Kevin, and I didn't really know anything. So every time I ran into creationists talking about the flood, I'd have to message him or go find him somewhere, and he's pretty much just swatting down like flies left and right. So uh, I thought we would uh, get him to come on the show and, and talk about this whole flood geology thing, because really a lot of it is kind of over my head. It gets pretty scientific and... So I figured I'd get him to explain it instead of me. So, Kevin, you don't, you don't believe there was a flood? Uh, well, there was a flood here in Houston earlier this year. <laughs> oh, that sure was. Perhaps you've all heard about it. Uh, and then Louisiana just had one. But no, there's never been a, global flood. a globally distributed flood uh, like the one described in Genesis or anywhere else. Okay, well, you know, Kevin, I'm going to play devil's advocate here because it's, it's more fun that way. That's great. And I'm going to say, I'm going to challenge that and say, okay, you know what? If you climb Mount Everest, you can find fossils of mollusks there. Ha-ha! What do you say to that, buddy? Oh, my God. Um, well, what I would say to that is you have to learn the difference between what happens with rocks 
as they're being deposited and what happens to rocks after they're deposited. So if, for instance, if that were going to be evidence for a global flood uh, all the way up to the top of Mount Everest, uh, then we would certainly expect to see uh, similar types of fossils everywhere. And in fact, the creationists, uh, and I'll, I'll very often use the term creationist for young earth creationists, a lot of creationists will bridle at that because they're not all young earth creationists, but nonetheless, um, if uh, they, they maintain that uh, we find these things on the top of every mountain, and this is simply not true. Um, there are not marine fossils on the top of every mountain, nor on the top of every hill, nor at the base of those hills or in the valleys. And that right there shows us that there's something else going on here. If fossils, if marine fossils are not globally distributed uh, in every location, how could we have a global flood? Well, in the case of Mount Everest and other such mountains, uh, what we have is sediments that were originally deposited flat lying, and that's how um, sediments are typically deposited uh, in a, an ocean basin. Uh, they can be deposited in lots of situations, but uh, these are marine sediments, and they have marine uh, fossils in them. Animals, marine animals, life lives uh, in the water column. It lives on the sediment surface, and some of them even live in the sediment. They live in the so-called substrate. So when they die, because their shells are made of calcium carbonate, um, they're, they're not edible. Uh, so typically you'll get a lot of shell debris that just is buried right along with the, with the sediment that's being deposited into that basin. Now, if you give it enough time, more and more sediment piles up, and that is what forms a sedimentary basin. All of that sediment piles up, it gets compressed, uh, cemented, and becomes rock. It's no longer soft sediment, it is now rock. Uh, the organisms that were there, some percentage of them, their, their, uh, their calcareous tests have now been converted to fossils. And if we've all heard of plate tectonics, this is the fact that the, the Earth is made up of um, a number of rigid uh, plates at the very surface of the Earth that uh, move over the uppermost part of the Earth's mantle. And those, when those plates move around, they interact at the edges. And in the case of the Himalayas, the reason that those mountains exist is because India, the subcontinent of India, collided with the Eurasian plate um, around 40 million years ago, and that process closed the ocean basin between them and then raised those sediments up to form the mountains. So those fossils that you see in Mount Everest, those marine fossils, they are part of the rock. They're not sitting around on top like seashells at the seashore. They are actually a part of the rock. The mountains themselves were um, marine sediments uh, deposited in an ocean between Eurasia and India prior to that collision. So Wait a minute. Are you saying it's the Indians' fault? <laughs> <laughs> it's the Pakistanis. Okay. So basically, <laughs> these fossils are underneath the water in the earth, and then a mountain forms, and that's how they get there, right? Yeah, they just get raised up. Uh, I mean, a, a closer-to-home example. Um, again, I could elaborate on plate tectonics all day, but uh, um, you have... Uh, uh, let's take the area off of uh, the Pacific coast of South America, uh, where we have the Andes mountain chain. 
And the reason that the Andes are there is because the Pacific Plate is diving beneath the edge, the Pacific edge of South America. It's uh, it's doing something that we call subduction. So that that process is one where the deep ocean plate, the Pacific Plate, which is made of denser rocks than the continent, um, is plunging beneath the continent, and you get volcanics that build up uh, over the top of them, and you get rocks crumpled up, very much like what you see in uh, uh, in the case of the Himalayas, as a result of that plate interaction. So if there was a worldwide flood, this is what I wanted to focus on mostly, is what kind of evidence would you see? And it, it sounds to me like you're saying that there would be more than mollusks. You would find other marine animals, right? Yes. I mean, you... Uh, okay, so let's... Let me sort of uh, answer your question in, in two basic parts. Um, if there was a global flood, there would be an impact both on the uh, sediments that were deposited and the distribution of uh, life within those sediments. So let's take the rocks, first of all. Um, when you get a, uh, a very strong storm or something as big as a tsunami even, uh, these produce very distinctive deposits. And in fact, it is uh, yexters themselves, the young earth creationists themselves, who have stated that uh, we should see enormous winds and trees and um, very large-scale catastrophic erosion and deposition of sediments. So, if we if we uh, you know if we use their model, which I think actually is is quite reasonable, if you have a complete global flood, um, then w what we're going to see is uh, is extreme erosion, uh, and at the base of the flood deposit, you're going to see a chaotic mix of very large clasts, such as large boulders, very large boulders, uh, foundered cliff sides, um, you know, stuff as big as a house or, or bigger, um, lining the bottom of this deposit. And that's because that's where the wave energy will be the greatest, right? As this flood is rising, going to get a great deal of wave energy and, and uh, velocity, and that can simply carry larger particles in water. If you, uh, if you ever go to a river, um, you'll see that, uh, or, or the beach, you'll see that the, that the stronger currents will pick up and carry the heavier particles. It uh, just makes sense, right? So the base of this deposit is going to have very large particles, boulders, etc., but you're also going to have a lot of mud mixed in, a lot of very fine sediment. This is called a, a very poorly sorted deposit where you have different grain sizes. And then gradually, as, as the water rises, less and less energy can be applied to the, uh, the ground surface, right, that's being inundated. That means less and less sediment can be picked up and moved. It also means that gradually the velocity uh, decreases. And when that happens, uh, all of those fine grains of sediment, which have been carried in the water the longest, when the water finally gets slow enough moving, then it's going to start to settle out. So what we'll see then is overall a deposit that goes from um, uh, very large grain sizes, boulder sizes at the base, gradually fining upward to uh, sands, silts, and then finally muds.
And we don't see and that, this, right? That's what you're saying? Yeah, and this this is this is what we call a graded deposit, and it, and it would be, you know, probably hundreds of meters thick at the very least, um, but probably not a whole lot more than that. Uh, some people have said tens of meters. I, I suspect it could be any. It could be up to hundreds of meters thick. And no, we do not see that. We would see that globally deposited. There's nothing different about, uh, you know, fundamentally different about the different continental masses around the world. You have a global flood. You're going to see that. You're not. You're going to see it not just on the continents. You're going to see it sloughing off into the ocean basins as well. Well, and the and rocks that, all going to be the same age too, right? It's all going to be. It will all be uh, time correlative. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? That's right. Now, no matter how old the Earth is, then there's it, it, those deposits will have been laid down at more or less the same time. Yeah, because what I see creationists doing is they'll go around the world and they'll pick out 20 different local flood events and say, look, there's evidence of a flood here, 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 and there. And then when you actually, you know, use radiometric dating or, or whatever to find out how old that rock is, one happened a thousand years ago, one happened a million years ago, one happened 10 million years ago, and they say it all came from the same flood. You can't handle the truth! The, it, exactly. They tend to conflate any... Of course, most creationists have no idea what a flood deposit looks like anyway. They will simply state that every rock that we see is obviously was obviously deposited as, as part of the flood. Hold on uh, there, None John. of them are, are actually giving you any evidence that, uh, that that is the case. Now, hold on here, gentlemen, because, you know, I, today I'm playing the role of somebody in creation land, right? Yep. And I have absolute evidence. I remember uh, several sh episodes ago, we actually did a show, uh, uh, one of the stories in our Another Brilliant Moment segment, where they actually found a whale skeleton in the Sahara. Now that's evidence, is it not? <laughs> it's as much evidence as those, uh, those fossils on top of, uh, of Everest are, um, in the sense that... Uh, um, if, if this were the case, if this was evidence of a global flood, well, you know, why don't we find these things everywhere? Well, why are they, why are they actually found only in, uh, in certain rocks at certain times? Now, th in this particular case, um, there is evidence from the, the sediments themselves that those were, uh, river deposits. And, uh, there was a time when that river was, uh, was open to the sea. And uh, as as we have seen mammals before, the uh, the whale was was able to to swim upstream, get trapped, and then ultimately be uh, be fossilized. Well, yeah, there's lots of places in the world that are deserts now and used to be really like wet rainforests, right? No, That's the correct. Earth is only six thousand years <laughs> old, guys. Come on. Well, I think I think the funniest <laughs> argument I've ever seen is that they try to basically say that the flood would have produced. Uh, the fossil record, fossil succession, where they would be organized by mass, you know what I mean? Like, the biggest animals would be at the bottom, and we don't see that. Like, you should see T-Rexes and humans found together in the same rock, and we don't find that either, right? That's correct, and that's where I was going with the second part of my answer to the... You're, I think you're covering your microphone. Yeah, you have a microphone. Can, can you hear now? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I was. Uh, that's where I want to go with the second part of my answer. We've talked about the the rocks themselves, the sediments, and what they would look like if there were a global flood. Talked about the things you would see. There are things that you wouldn't see. You wouldn't see uh, coral reefs forming uh, in the middle of a flood. You wouldn't see chalks forming in the middle of a flood because these animals require 
um, clear waters in order to um, to eat and to reproduce, to live. So the presence of these things at various times throughout uh, throughout geologic history uh, gives the lie to um, to a global flood. There are rock types that uh, are simply not deposited even in water. Um, you know, uh, sediments are deposited in fluids. Fluids include both liquids and gases. And in the case of uh, wind-blown sand, the fluid is air. So we have sands being deposited in uh, sand dunes on shore. And, and there are ancient sand dune deposits right in the middle of what the creationists need to be a global flood. And so, of course, they simply just deny that these very classic, exact duplicates of modern-day sand, um, sand dunes are not sand dunes at all. They're, they're marine sands rather than, uh, rather than uh, terrestrial sands. So what do you get in marine rocks? Let's segue into, uh, in, into the fossils themselves. Well, if those are marine rocks. We should see some some marine fossils. Uh, I mean, it, marine invertebrates, clams, snails, brachiopods, depending on what time we're looking at, trilobites. These things are ubiquitous. I mean, they're everywhere. The the you know the fossils are easy to find. In in over a couple of thousand square miles of this particular sandstone, the the Navajo sandstone, Coconino sandstone, in uh, in, in North America. There's not a single marine fossil, not one. So, uh, no marine fossils. Looks exactly like a terrestrial, uh, wind-blown sand deposit. That's what it is. But the creationists obviously need it to be something else. So, let's talk about fossils more generally then. What should we see in terms of fossil distribution if there were a global flood? Inconceivable! Um, Tyler was talking briefly about um, the sorting of uh, the arrangement of the fossils vertically through the stratigraphic column. And some, the, I'd say the most common statement parroted by creationists is that the, the faunal succession, that is the change in fossils vertically in rocks around the world, is, is due to so-called hydrologic sorting. This is another way of saying that, that it's, a, um, it's based on size and or density. Well, this is just a, this is just a complete lie. This is not what we see at all. We see, in the, for instance, in the Cambrian rocks, which are the oldest um, of, the, of the more recent rocks. Let's forget the Precambrian for a moment. We have loads of trilobites, marine invertebrates. But, shoot, we've got loads of marine invertebrates of the same size in rocks all the way up to the present. Uh, as Tyler said, you know, we should see man and T-Rexes, dinosaurs, representatives of every single thing that has ever lived completely intermixed in rocks that have been deposited by the flood. And we never see that. Well, what did, what uh, we don't Ken see Ham, man with dinosaurs. Yeah. What did Ken Ham say in the uh, Bill Nye debate? I think they were looking at the Grand Canyon. He said, look, they just swam to the top. I'm like, wait, you're telling me that humans are better <laughs> swimmers than some aquatic dinosaurs? What the yeah. hell? Now, hold uh, on. Yeah, exactly. And better than fish? Hold on, hold on. I won't let you guys bash Ken Ham because Ken Ham was there. 
<laughs> okay, Kev- I have this book, <laughs> and he was there. You see, see, uh, you see, Kevin. I I can't believe what you're saying because you're a scientist, and that makes you automatically a liar. And you lied right away because you said that Tyler spoke briefly, and we all know that never happens. <laughs> now, now, uh, uh, how could you be talking about the Precambrian when we all know you're using carbon fourteen, and it's only fifty thousand years, right? And then you're talking about out. Yeah, what's up with that? Uh, potassium <laughs> argon. <laughs> Oh boy, that that's a that's an entirely different kettle of fish to talk about uh, absolute dating, and maybe we could hold that uh, just for a moment. I, I just I just want to complete the thought on the on the fossils is that uh, just in summary, uh, um, the the fossil distribution is completely inconsistent with um, a flood origin, and in fact, it disproves a flood origin. It it uh, is some of the strongest evidence that we have for. Uh, the theory of evolution. Um, I mean, the distribution of fossils is completely consistent with what we know about evolution and not consistent with a flood origin. So um, the, the fossil record is used as an indicator of relative time, okay, rather than absolute time, which is what you were just talking about. It's relative time. So even before radioactivity had been discovered in the late 1800s, and even before we had a, uh, a useful radiometric dating tool, uh, which really matured in the 1950s, we had this means of relative dating. And, and by that, I mean we simply used like fossils in uh, rocks all over the world to correlate them by time. So if you see a particular trilobite in, uh, in England and you find it in Europe and you find it in the U.S., then the hypothesis was well, these guys are, are you know, from the same time, and therefore the rocks are of the same relative age. We don't know how old the rocks are yet, because we, haven't, we have not yet discovered radioactivity. This is in the 19th century. This was all worked out by um, uh, a, a geologist and uh, canal engineer in England by the name of Smith, uh, who in 1815 published his... Uh, his uh, map, his geologic map, the first geologic map of a sizable area, which was England, Scotland, and part of Wales. And uh, uh, this was uh, the, the beginning of the modern science of stratigraphy, which showed that the distribution of fossils could be used to um, distinguish different geologic times, even if we don't know the, the numerical value of those ages, even if we don't know if it's 6,000 years ago, 6 million, 6 billion years ago. Those fossils, that's, that's simply empirical evidence. Their distribution indicates that uh, like fossils mean like time. Okay, that's a very, very important concept in geology it's, and results in something we call the geologic column. Which doesn't exist, according to... Which naturally does not exist. That, that, that <laughs> was a, that's a, a, a statement that's been made for decades by creationists. And interestingly enough, I'll give them their due on this, it was not until probably the 1980s that, uh, that we could confirm through deep drilling in different sedimentary basins around the world that, the, uh, that representatives of every single geologic period um, were in fact present in 25 sedimentary basins around the world. Up until that time, we'd only seen um, parts of the geologic column in different places, which is to be expected since... When you see anything at the surface, it's there's been erosion, right? The the surface of the earth is an erosional surface, and so uh, geologists never expected to see all the geologic column in one place. 
But when you drill, and you drill in deep into a sedimentary basin, and by deep I mean tens, tens of uh, thousands of feet in some cases, we have actually discovered the entire geologic column or representatives of it in, uh, in many places around the world. So creationists proved wrong once again. That's, that's pretty impressive, actually. But uh, even one of the, just before you go, even one of the main things that I like to remind people of that I post all the time is the affiliation of Christian geologists. They agree with everything yes. that you said, so it's not just a yes, absolutely. Thing. And uh, and most of my career has, especially uh, given <laughs> that much of it has been here in the U.S. and much of it in the southern U.S. Most of my career has certainly been working with Christian geologists and Christian geophysicists. This is this is not heresy to them. That what is heresy to the vast majority of Christian geoscientists is the entire concept of young earth creationism. Now, you know, they don't buy it any more than I buy it. Hmm. What are you saying, Francis? What are you saying, Francis? Yeah, um, I, w I was saying, first of all, I I'd like to correct Kevin like that um, relative time but, uh, actually refers to when your parents come to visit, and it's very, very slow. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> General relativity, right? So, so if you heathen scientists are claiming that the Earth is not 6,000 years old like our almighty God said it would be, then how do you know that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old? That's a very good question. And, and uh -huh. uh, you know, it's obviously a different question than questions about the flood or questions about evolution. One of the things that I always try to, to do with uh, what appears to this, uh, sometimes, I find uh, one who appears to be sincere say, look, let's separate these issues out because they're actually all independent. Uh, it is possible, for instance, that you could have a vastly old Earth that was flooded. Uh, it's possible you could have uh, a very young Earth that was not flooded. Um, we could have evolution or not evolution. So let's treat each of these as three separate things. And so we've done that thus far. We've talked about uh, the flood as something separate. We talked briefly about evolution as, as uh, indicated by fossils uh, distributed in sedimentary rocks. Now let's talk about the, the so-called absolute or numerical age of the Earth and how do we get there. Okay, well, just so, so, just so and, you know, Kevin Francis yeah. is uh -huh. pretending to be a creationist, so he has to use the moving the goalposts fallacy. No, no, I don't have to. <laughs> but I, I think you guys are avoiding my question here. No, no. Uh, but there, there is a timer no. on this. There's a timer on I'll this question. There. I'll get we, we did discuss so, it with Jeff Greenberg, though, when he was on here. We, we, yeah, and nice sound effects. <laughs> and we, we did talk about, well, like, we got pretty deep into it, actually, about you know, how long it takes, you know, the half-life of uranium to lead, the whole hourglass metaphor analogy or whatever. And then we talked about potassium argon, and then Nancy told me to yeah, shut up. If somebody didn't catch that show, they don't yeah. know. So sh shut up again and let <laughs> the man talk. Kevin, the mic is all yours. Okay. All right, well, I'll give you a perhaps a slightly, uh, I'll emphasize possibly different things than he emphasized. So, um, just historically, radioactivity was discovered in the late um, 1890s. Um, that ultimately led in the, I believe, the, the end of the first decade of the 20th century to uh, an initial attempt to, um, to use that radioactive clock to determine the age of natural materials. In this particular case, I think it was a single mineral specimen. I uh, don't recall what it was. Um, so, yes, it is based on, on uh, statistically, um, how quickly uh, the radioactive 
isotopes in a sample will decay to some other isotope, uh, whether it's radioactive itself or, or stable. And uh, using that technique uh, requires something called a mass spectrometer. The mass spectrometer is able to um, distinguish between the masses of the various isotopes in the sample and uh, end up with uh, a count of them, a mass of them. And through that method, we can determine um, how long it's been since that particular uh, mineral analyzed, how long it's been since it crystallized from a, from a melt, such as a, a magma, a basalt, for instance, that's uh, poured out onto the surface of the earth or on the ocean bottom, or how long it's been since that crystal recrystallized, if it's a metamorphic rock. I don't want to get into too many terms here, but those are rocks that have been reheated over time. Um, and uh, it was uh, only in the 1950s that the mass spectrometers became sensitive enough that we were able to uh, get, get to an age that, in fact, has held now for 65 years. And so that, that's interesting right there because creationists will often say, ah, oh, the age of the Earth, you know, the geologists change it all the time. Well, no, that's not true. It, it hasn't changed since the 1950s. But, but the interesting thing is that the age that was derived in the 1950s is actually a model. It's not the measurement of what we believe to be the world's oldest rock. Uh, in fact, it uh, uses the ages that were determined using lead um, isotopes um, of a variety of meteorites and some terrestrial samples and I think the oldest terrestrial sample at the time was in the three billion year range, and, and the meteorites. The meteorites were older; they were in the um, close to the four and a half billion year range, I believe. And uh, making an assumption about the distribution of lead isotopes uh, across our our uh, solar system, they built a model and plotted um, those points and came up with a modeled age of the Earth of four point five. Five, I believe it was, a uh, billion years old uh, with a certain precision attached to that. And in the last 65 years or so, that age has changed by less than a half a percent. It's changed from 4.55 to 4.54. And that's with the addition of tons of lunar rocks that have been dated, uh, lots more meteorites, lots more terrestrial samples, I believe that the count is now over 200,000 samples have been age-dated um, for the Earth, uh, meteorites, the moon, and the age remains the same. So the model is holding up, it's predictive, and it says we shouldn't find a mineral that's older than around that age within a certain precision, and to date that is correct. To date, the oldest uh, rock that we have found on the surface of the Earth is around 43 billion years old, which is Canadian, so uh, pat yourselves on the back there, Canadians. Mm -hmm. Yay! And uh, in the case of uh, a mineral, it's a uh, zircon mineral, which is extremely long-lasting. It's, it's almost as hard as diamond, which is why it persists in rocks at the surface. And that one is 4.4 billion years old, and that's from um, uh, some sedimentary rocks in Australia. Of course, we love the Australians, too. So, so, so Kevin... <laughs> So, Kevin, so 4.4 and 4.3 and billion years old, that's not the age of the Earth, but it's pretty darn close. Yeah, so, Kevin, bottom line is, with, with all the scientific 
evidence, with all the new technology that is uh, verifying the, um, you know, all of, all of the, the information that you have about the, my, my, I'm stumbling over this, so excuse me for a minute, but with everything that no you have that is scientifically provable, and you come across the young age uh, creationists, if they were to admit that this was true, it would immediately begin to erode and destroy their Good belief. Good choice of word. Yeah, in the ah. um, in the inerrancy of the Bible. So how then can they accept the scientific proof as being true when it it then begins to destroy uh, everything that they they have believed uh, to be true that God, um, you know, um, uh, put the earth here at, at 5,000 years and everything stems from God. Well, first of all, speaking as, as the fake creationist on the show today, uh, I will point out that Kevin pointed out that the earth was 4.55, then 4.54. Therefore. So therefore, <laughs> science is unreliable. Stuff well, that up your body. I think that's that's the point. Is regardless of what Kevin or other geologists or scientists say, the the young creationist always comes back with two words: yes, but. And at that point, you're done. Yes, there's yes, nothing else that yes, you can say. But the Bible doesn't say worldwide <laughs> flood, and the Bible also doesn't say that the Earth is six thousand years old. All very true. Luke, uh, Luke is the only uh, place that they trace Jesus back to Adam, and then they added up all those ages. None of the other rest of the Bible says it. And they use the word, is it the word land or the word earth that they use in Genesis? I mean, that many years ago, if your entire country flooded and you don't know about any other parts of the world, as far as you know, the whole damn world flooded. You're taking this yep. out of context. <laughs> and, 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 in, and in fact, there is evidence for... Near Middle Eastern floods, Tigris Euphrates valleys, and other locations, um, you know, at appropriate times that could have been uh, could have inspired yeah. this mythology, like um, uh, and Gilgamesh and whatnot. I believe I thought, yes. I thought it was the Black Sea around seven thousand BC. That's one of them. Yeah, that's okay. one. Of that's the, the that's only one, of the one I'm aware of. It's not the only one. Yeah, that's the only one I'm aware of. Forgive my ignorance, yeah. Kevin, but could it be possible that, that maybe the story of the the flood was inspired by the formation of the Mediterranean Sea, or is that too old for uh, for it to happen? You know what? Because I'm, I'm assuming here, you know, the ocean kind of popped in as soon as they passed the uh, was it the Pillars of Hercules, right? And they kind of flooded that entire valley and became the Mediterranean Sea. Or am I completely out of my gourd on this? No, you're. Um, it, it's it's too long ago, um, but there, there you may have heard about the the uh, what to geologists anyway is the famous Mycenaean salinity crisis. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Which um, um, you know we we find these things fascinating, of course. But uh, <laughs> this was when the Mediterranean uh, drained. Uh, it was blocked off at the uh, at the western entrance. And as a result, uh, be because it became a, an, a, uh, a closed basin and one that had very little water, fresh water flowing into it, then the natural result in a marine body of water is that salt deposits out of it, okay? And so there's a big, thick section of salt in the uh, subsurface of the, uh, of the Mediterranean that demonstrates that Mycenaean uh, salinity crisis. So, yes, it, it drained. And then it refilled 
but uh, it didn't refill during human times. It, it refilled uh, long before that. Oh, very interesting. The Black Sea event, though, was something that has, as, as Tyler was saying, is something that has happened. There's indications that it, it happened around that, uh, that uh, time frame. Uh, there are there is a sedimentary record there that has been claimed by the authors uh, to represent a relatively quick flooding event. Some others have subsequently said it's a relatively slower flooding event, so it's it's not decided. But yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of different events in the area that could have inspired the uh, Noachian flood. What no. do they mean when they say relatively quick? Yeah, now you're talking to a geologist. So uh, <laughs> this is what I'm saying. <laughs> not not uh, rel- relative quick uh you, you know could be over could be over years rather than uh rather than you know a week in in, in houston <laughs> yeah well and the salt thing that you mentioned is interesting too because if you had a worldwide flood you'd be mixing saltwater fish and freshwater fish together and they'd all fucking die <laughs> that's that's true unless you had uh, and, and of course, the creationists always go, "What? It's water. You don't need to bring fish on the on the ark." Um, yeah, I mean, it's well known fact for anybody that's ever raised tropical fish or or paid attention to nature around them that you don't see the same uh, aquatic life in rivers and lakes that you do in the ocean. I, uh, I the, always like the, I always the, like the salinity is important to uh, to both. I always like to ask them where they kept the woodpeckers and the termites on the ark. <laughs> <laughs> there's also the idea that in the in the water you it's not just salinity, you also need there's a certain amount of pressure and a certain amount of light as well, right? That's all true too. Yeah, yeah there's all sorts of conditions that uh, you just can't take and, animals and out of their environments and throw them in a boat. And if there was an ark that actually floated on water and went higher than Mount Everest, I think they would all freeze to death. <laughs> well, and the oxygen that's also been put out be able there. to breathe you know the one thing that bothers me about the myth of the flood is for some reason God and Noah are on speaking terms for the longest time but then he has to send out a dove why couldn't he just get like hey dude uh, where's the land there can we land somewhere why does he have to send out a bird <laughs> because it was in the epic of Gilgamesh first yeah, I think just God just got a <laughs> pissy moon and said fine find your own place to land on a boat with no rudder Kevin, thank you so much for your time on the show today. Um, normally, uh, this is the point where I ask the, the guests if they can find out more about themselves, but since you're being anonymous here, as a <laughs> geologist, what would you recommend our audience do if they want to learn more about the subject? Oh, my goodness, that's a good question. Um, Ooh, I one, I would recommend that they read the classic um, Young Earth Creationist text, the, uh, the Genesis Flood by Whitcomb and Morris, 1961. This is what most, ultimately, even if they don't know it, this is what most of our modern-day yeks are parroting. Um, it, written not by a geologist, but by an engineer and a theologian. So those are ultimately their, their authorities on geology, people who never did geology, never understood geology, but, of course, they could come up with with this uh, this global flood concept and debunk um, 200 years of geology. So um, to read the other side, which is always a good idea, I, I would certainly read that. Um, any uh, standard uh, introductory geology text is certainly, uh, certainly a good starting point for somebody who wants to understand how sediments are really deposited and how basically all of geology disproves the concept of a young earth and, uh, uh, and a flood. What about Talk Origins? 
I'm sorry. What about the Talk web? Origins? Is, yeah, Talk Origins is a great idea. I tend to be a reader of books rather than websites, but Talk Origins is a is a fantastic resource. It uh, you know it obviously is not peer reviewed itself, but it links to lots of peer reviewed um, papers uh, that address various topics that the young Earth creationists like to bring up in these debates. So yeah, Talk Origins is fantastic. There's uh, um, there's uh, a gentleman by the name of Glenn Morton who was a uh, young Earth um, scientist. I mean, he, he wasn't doing young Earth science. He was a physicist who was a young Earther, got into the oil business, became a geophysicist, was exposed to the actual evidence in the subsurface of the Earth, and in pretty short order dropped his young Earthism and became a regular um, geoscientist. And his stuff has been reblogged. I don't remember who's doing it now, but if you look up Glenn Morton and some of his uh, writings, I think you find a lot of great stuff there uh, online as well. I just love the way you said that. He was exposed to Earth stuff. It almost sounds like a superhero <laughs> beginning. And he became Earthman. Yes. <laughs> he <after it> was exposed. <laughs> Kevin, thank you so much for all your time here. Before I let you go, can I ask you to do me a favor? Can I get you to say, hi, I'm Kevin the Geologist, and I took a left at the valley. Hi, I'm Kevin the Geologist, and I took a left at the valley. And that was our friend Kevin the Geologist. Great guy. Love this guy. Yeah, he's awesome. A lot of information, you know, that... Um, is you know down to earth and scientifically provable. I just think if you wanted to use that um, against young earth um, creationists, which are done in debates all the time, I don't think it, they're delusional. It's not going to have an impact unless, as he said, that gentleman you know became uh, was it a ge- not a geophysicist became a a um, finally got converted to. To reality because he was exposed to again to use the word exposed he was finally exposed to enough science mm-hmm. where he realized it was it was absolutely true but to give up the delusion i i i don't think that's i don't think it, it happens well, in i don't know I, as the, the mock creationist on the show today i was doing pretty good there you were doing pretty throwing good. a couple of curveballs at him which of course he just completely destroyed me but well, but you had to become a mockery. You couldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole point. You had to totally suspend reality. Maybe in order the audience to get into can it. let us know if I was a good creationist or not. Oh, I thought Send you were really good. Send a message at leftatvalleyatoutlook.com. Yeah. I've got here a little clip. You guys ever heard of Dark Matter 2525? He does this little series of, uh, of uh, little cartoonish God, and he talks to Jeffrey, the little angel. And uh, it's it's really a pearl of a thing. I high, highly recommend it. It's funny as hell. And I've got this little thing. Uh, it's called Atheist Comedy of the Great Flood. Let's play that. Hey, guys. Look, uh, we, got a, we got a problem. Ah, damn it, Jeffrey. Always with the problems. Always with the problems. What now? God, this, this whole Noah's Ark scheme that you got going, it's just not going to work. I, mean, I, thought, I know, I know. You, t- you already told me there's not enough room for six million animals on the ark. That's why I told you to cut out all the different variations and just use the bare minimum. Yeah, but I, I did that, and, and that still leaves us with 17,400 birds, 12,000 reptiles, 9,000 mammals, 5,000 amphibians, and 2 million insects. Huh. Oh. That's still a lot. <laughs> Ah, fuck! I 
actually got a feeling the animals on the ark is the least of our worries right now. We should be more worried about the food. You told Noah to bring any kind of food that is to be eaten. Do you have any idea how much an animal eats in one year? I mean, two elephants are going to require 365,000 pounds of food and, and 36,500 gallons of water. What water, Jeffrey? It's going to be raining. Yeah, for 40 days. What are they going to do for the other 325 days? I mean, the giraffes are going to need 54,750 pounds of food. The hippos are going to need 65,700 pounds of food. The two lions are going to need 16,060 pounds of meat. I mean, all that meat's going to rot. God, have you thought this through? <laughs> okay, okay, I think I got it. What if I have Noah bring only baby animals? <laughs> Babies? Okay, God, how are we going to work that out? Do you want the baby animals to travel to Noah from all around the world? Because by the time most of them reach Noah, they're going to be adults. Or, or do you want all the animals to reach Noah and then coexist in the same ecosystem until they all get pregnant and have babies at the exact same time so that Noah can bring them all? God, this is, this is ludicrous. This ain't gonna work. Okay, okay. What if we get the animals to hibernate? Well, even a bear can only hibernate about 100 days at a time, and they're gonna be on an ark four times longer than that. Look, God, none of this even really matters anyway, because you said that the floodwaters are going to cover all of the mountains under the heavens by a depth of 20 feet. That's going to put the altitude of the floodwaters at 29,055 feet. All the animals are going to freeze to death. And those that don't freeze to death are going to become exhausted just from trying to breathe in an atmosphere that has 33% less oxygen, and they're going to suffocate. This is going to be disastrous, God. Disastrous. God, not even most of the sea life is going to survive. What, Jeffrey? The Earth's going to be covered with water, perfect for sea life. Are you kidding me? You're going to be changing the water temperature, the water pressure, the light filtration, salt water is going to be mixing with fresh water. God, it's going to kill most aquatic life, too. Huh. Okay. I see your point. Uh, I think we get the, the gist of it. So. <laughs> oh, no. you got to play the end part. That's the, the best. The end part? Yeah. There's another six or four minutes of this. Okay. Anyways, at the end, his solution is magic <laughs> and that's how he solves the problem that's right magic and nothing but magic but that's it i mean the end part is the bible i mean it, it there there is no argument you can't you, you can argue but it'll make you nuts god can do whatever he wants that's the answer i get from people all the time <laughs> exactly <laughs> what about this yeah but god can do whatever he wants he when, can suspend when, physics and everything else that's right when you don't understand science or you're not you know able to to understand the facts or you don't know the facts that's the greatest fallback in the world it requires nothing except it just happened because god said so i want to do if i ever get like arrested and almost convicted for a crime i'm gonna say it wasn't me well we got you in video camera we did that's magic <laughs> you're framing me no we got your fingerprints well, those aren't mine there's somebody else's fingerprints that are identical to mine just all these ridiculous excuses to get out of it that's exactly what they do so i think in conclusion we could say that flood thing yeah it's a nice story it's not even a nice story it's just a horrible story they should just get rid of it yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure my children will be dealing with these young earth creationist flood geology people as well. Well, you know what? It's very apropos because we have here another brilliant moment brought to you by religion. You know, speaking of doomsday, did you guys know that there's another doomsday happening soon? Of course there is. When is this one? Oh, yes. Well, Last week. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
That's it. That's like it. That. <laughs> We're done. There's nothing you can say to top that one, Kevin. While most theologians take the book of Revelation as allegorical tale of the conflict between good and evil, for some it clearly contains a prophecies that can apply to life in the present. One passage in Revelation refers to a woman clothed in the sun with the moon at her feet, who will become hunted by a satanic seven-headed dragon that wants to devour her unborn child. So when this happens, it's going to be the end of the world, apparently. So the new doomsday is August 21st, 2017. Oh, wow. A bit, more, uh, a bit less than a year from now. So these people are interpreting the woman in the passage as the Earth and believe that the reference to the sun and the moon refer to the planet being engulfed in a total eclipse, which was when the, uh, when the sun, earth, and moon move into perfect alignment with one another. This is an interpretation of this particular Christian group who have extrapolated further to say that there will be a total eclipse of the sun, August 21st, 2017, that will plunge the earth into eternal darkness and the end of life as we know it. This interpretation of the scripture has been has left some worried. I don't know who these people are. There will be a total, a total eclipse on the 21st of August 2017, according to NASA. It will actually be the first solar eclipse of the uh, to hit the United States in almost 40 years, and the first to stretch from coast to coast in nearly a century. However, definitely do not suggest that the eclipse will be permanent by any means. Only some people in continental North America will witness a total eclipse, and most people in the United States and Europe will only witness a partial eclipse. So there we go, guys. Mark your calendar. How many predictions has this group made before this? Oh, it doesn't say, but you know, if it's they're like any Christians... Expert, they're getting expert in making the predictions. I, I think maybe they're, they're, the thing is they're, they're just going to keep tossing dates out there, and hopefully maybe one day we'll just get it right. <laughs> it's like playing the lot Like of, playing you know? darts. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we should get a hold of these people like next August and convince them to give us all of their stuff. They're not going to need it anyway. That's right. No. Sell the farm. You know, it's kind of funny because it reminds you of a story where there was a person doing that. They were, uh, I think it started as a joke, but some people were taking it seriously. He started a, a uh, pet program oh, to take care of their right. pet while uh, they we were being about raptured. That la- that's true. We, we talked, talked about, about that last year. We did. Yeah, we talked about this. I think it's um. brilliant. <laughs> well, and then there's that book, 88 Reasons Why the World Will End in the Year 1988. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I don't remember seeing that book. <laughs> that was only 28 years ago. Yeah, it was a super, super famous book. He used Bible verses to support it and a whole bunch of other stuff. So, <laughs> uh, But as for the whole Revelation thing, there's a book. I think it's called Decoding Revelation. It's by a, a university professor named Bruce Metzger, if you've ever heard of him. No. He taught uh, Bart Ehrman. Okay. Uh, and it's a really good book and explains how the seven heads of the dragon is actually the seven Roman emperors that they had at the time. And the whole thing is about how it was written in code, so obviously this, nothing bad happened to this guy, but basically how people were worshipping the emperor instead of Jesus. And that was you know, a horribly bad thing. So it was all written in metaphor and code and blah, blah. And that's really what it was about. It was political, and people have been interpreting it in all kinds of you know, futuristic, predictive ways when he was actually talking about the present. Well, you know what? I'm going to stick to a wild acid trip. I yeah, think that's, that's a better explanation. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show, guys. Thank you for always for listening to us. You can follow us at leftofthevalley.com. You can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, at LATV Podcast. You can send us an email, leftatvalley at outlook.com. Coming up, 
we actually have Dave Silverman, the president of American Atheist. That's going to be fantastic. That oh, should be I'm October the 1st. Yeah. Yes. We also have our friend Arn Raw is coming back. He's just released a book, so he's going to come back to talk about his book. Next week, we're supposed to have a debate. Kevin, uh, who is not here today, versus Tyler. That should be interesting. About the origins of morality. That's right. So mm. maybe we'll just unleash these two and let them go at it. And Nancy and I, you can, just, yes. we'll just go pick up a bird or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> also, if anybody wants to actually tell me that I'm full of shit, you can find me at Discussion Group for Intellectuals on Facebook. And we also have the Left of the Valley Facebook group as well. That's right. Guys, thank you so much. Until next time. Is apparent you do what you're told and believe in the God assigned by your parents. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance, and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.